The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Many of you may have heard of um, C.S. Lewis, um, even if you would consider someone who hasn't read much of his writings, uh, you at least know of him as a popular Christian thinker, writer, author, uh, has written Chronicles of Narnia, amongst other things. One of his writings that is little known, um, and maybe you've read it before, but it's in a collection of essays. It's actually one of my favorites. It's called Meditations in a Tool Shed, kind of an odd uh, deal, but that's very C.S. Lewis. It came from him walking on his grounds. This was him, you know, and we, we don't do enough of this kind of thing uh, anymore. I wish we did. <clears throat> but going, walking along our, you know, um, on his grounds, so to speak, his, his, uh, his uh, lawns and uh, of the countryside of where he lived, and as he was just taking in life reflection, he saw a tool shed. Uh, he just he walked in, and, and as the door shut behind him, he noticed there were very few cracks in it, but one particularly above the door <clears throat> where the sun shone through the top of the door down, and the sunbeam was coming through. Maybe you've seen something like this in your house or in a, in a place even like Scarab Bennett that has beautiful sunlight <clears throat> where it comes through and dust particles are kind of floating through the light. And he, he began to just, this is, you know, just reflect, just looking at this beam, looking at the, the tool shed and kind of seeing, looking around and seeing the darkness and just this one beam shooting through. But then he actually moved in front of it to see where is the light coming from. And as soon as the light hit his eyes, the rest of the shed goes dark, right? And he sees, as he describes, through the top of this, through the crack in this door, uh, the trees waving in the wind and the sun, you know, trillions of miles away bringing it through. And he said this is an incredible experience for him because he said there's a difference between looking at the beam and describing it, uh, just seeing it and, and saying what it is and, and looking along the beam, experiencing it. We talk about this in things like love, you know. It's one thing to say, gosh, I, I love that thing and try and describe a food, a person or something like that. It's another thing to actually share the experience of it, to actually have it deep down in your gut, something or someone you really deeply care about and love, right? Those two kind of things. And when we talk about the Bible, when I, you know, as a pastor, this is a topic we talk about a lot. <laughs> People ask me about it, right? I preach from it. <clears throat> I talk about it. I study it. I read it. Um, it's something that is at the heart of, of, of what not only I do, but who I am. I often talk about it in kind of two parts with people. Uh, one is that there's the Bible itself. It, it, this is an old book. Like it, it's made of, you know, 66 books, countless authors. Like how do we make sense of all this stuff? You know, this is crammed into it. The other side of it is people often ask me, maybe even more so, is how do I experience it devotionally? You know, like I want to read it and <clears throat> make, make it a part of my life, make it something where I, when I read it, I feel inspired. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm living something that is far more important. So we have kind of these twin things, but here's the deal. You have to have both. The Bible is not one or the other. 
It's, it's just as important to look at the beam as it is to look along it. We can't simply look at the Bible as something as an experience, uh, experiential devotional, because if we do, we can miss the historicity of it, that it wasn't written necessarily to be a devotional. <laughs> it was written to give us the good news of a, of a massive account of this one-time account that expands and echoes before it and after it through history and time and space. But it also, you can't get rid of the redemptive nature of it, the devotional part, and just look at it historically. Then it becomes just this kind of rote document. And sometimes many of us in this room will read it, and when we don't feel like we're experiencing anything, we'll just read the Bible and we'll go, well, I got a lot of info out of that. That's what it can be like, right? <clears throat> what I want to entreat to you here is, as we're asking these questions, we've been looking at a number of questions about uh, Christianity, doubts of Christianity, scriptures, those kind of things, that one of the number one things is the source of Christianity, the Bible. Can we trust this thing? Is it reliable? What do we do with it? How do we, how do we make with this book that we continue to say we make sense of all of our lives from this thing? And so I want to say and treat you, there's two parts of this, two simple parts. The reliability of the scriptures, the reliability and the relatability. That is the reliability that it is rooted in history and space and in time, that we have to see it in that light. But together with that, we have to see its relatability, its redemptive nature. I often say to people, we have to understand the Bible through a redemptive historical understanding. It is about redemption. It is about a story coming to grab us. But it is historical. It's about real people. That's why I say, and I've been saying all through our service today, Every part of what we're doing is tangible, it's real, it's in space and time and history, but it connects to something much bigger than us. So let's look at those two parts <clears throat> as we look at this passage. It's a larger one, um, but we're going to look at reliability and then relatability, and just to help you think. So when you're asked this question, or if you're thinking through this question yourself, which I hope all of you are, even if you would say you follow Christ, the reliability and relatability. You know, the reliability of this begins in the very beginning of Luke's gospel. If, you, if you've even paid attention a little bit, Luke's gospel is a little different than some of the other ones. There are four narrative accounts of Jesus' life. One is Luke's, and it's the third one in your Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's the third one in there. <clears throat> but it begins this way, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he begins by even saying, look, I'm talking about compiling a narrative. Essentially, Luke's gospel is telling you what all the other gospels really are. Luke is just a lot more overt about it, that it's a compilation of actual stories, and not just stories told, but eyewitness accounts, interviews, that Luke himself actually goes to these people, and this one in particular is written to a man named Theophilus. You see it in verse 3, most excellent Theophilus, that there were people asking the same questions that we are. Okay, this is great and all. Is this a real deal? He's actually compiling a narrative account for a friend of his who's in a higher court. And it wouldn't just go to this man named Theophilus, it would actually be circulated to many others. He kind of realized that. Because once you created a document, it was not only given to one person, it was read aloud to other people to have. So Theophilus is re receiving this compilation of eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, a compiled narrative. 
and history, and Luke was a historian. He, this was very normal. It's easy to look at the Bible as something that's like, this is just a religious book. It's just trying to throw together like maybe a, a, a religious bent. It's actually not. If you think about what Luke is doing here, he's trying to compile something that was very normal in his day to talk historically. Now, it's hard for us as 21st century historians to look at a first century historian, but this is how they took it. <clears throat> One um, particular theologian said this, historians in the ancient world valued eyewitness testimony. They thought one could only write history within living memory of the events. Either one had been an eyewitness or else interviewed eyewitnesses in the events. Readers of the Gospels would have expected that. They would have been disappointed if it turned out that the Gospels were not written by eyewitnesses or had not been transmitted by eyewitness testimony. Early Christians would not have accepted these documents dropped from heaven. They're not just these things that's all. Here they are. They would have expected them to be rooted in history, written and compiled with care by people sensitive to whether the traditions were reliable or not. That's a huge distinction of Christianity, particularly the New Testament. We're looking at the whole Bible in this way, but, but, but different of Christianity in the Bible than, than some other religions. It is compiled as a narrative account to make sense through eyewitnesses. Now, Luke himself was a physician. I just saw one of our <clears throat> folks come in here in his scrubs. I loved it. I feel safer because of it. Um, but Luke was a physician. Now, he wasn't a physician typically like what we think of. He didn't go to school for a number of years. He, he didn't do all of those kind of things. He didn't have residencies. But, but Luke did. He was a researcher. He did study. So we can't look at Luke as just some kind of guy who picks up this idea. He was a total researcher. He knew how things worked. And not only that, his writing is unparalleled in the New Testament. In fact, his Greek is so complex and so well done, it's, it's, it's the second most complex book in the New Testament itself, aside from Hebrews. It's so beautifully written that, <clears throat> that it's incredibly sophisticated to read. If you were to translate it into Greek, people in those days would be like, this is really well written, really well thought out. And he writ wrote two parts. He wrote Luke and another book in the Bible called Acts. So those were kind of two parts to this book to, to lay this out for us. But his Greek, think about this. This is where I want you to go for a second. His Greek is so sophisticated that when you begin to read it, that he, he starts talking about certain places and certain times, places in Acts and in Luke where he visits certain people. One of those places is Ephesus. Ephesus was a place where the apostle John lived. And not only John, but where Mary, the mother of Jesus, was from. So we have the, the good testimony of here, not just him talking, and he followed, uh, Luke followed the apostle Paul himself, but he not only interviewed people like John following Paul, interviewing Peter and others, but he actually interviewed Mary herself. And if you read in the Greek, the, the Greek changes every time he talks about Mary speaking. Why? Because the idioms and the language changes from regular Greek to Semitic language. Because what's he doing? He's picking up Mary's language because a mother knows about her child. When a mama talks about her baby, she knows. And he's not just making up stuff. He's drawing in language that he would never have. I was just at a graduation party uh, last night. It was fun. Uh, good time. And it was 
celebrating some uh, friends of ours whose uh, son is graduating and going off to college. And um, I met a bunch of people that were uh, from Texas. I'm from Texas originally, and my wife and I both are, Megan. And we were talking about different parts in Dallas and Fort Worth and Houston and those kind of things. And as I was talking to them, I was telling them, you know, we were mentioning all the restaurants and all the places that, you know, you kind of share and those kind of things, experiences. But what really started me going was when I started talking about my mom grew up there. And I would go visit my grandparents in this kind of almost random part of Fort Worth. And what changed, it wasn't just mentioning like places like Joe T. Garcia's, this great restaurant. It was when me remembering that when I was a little kid, I would get my hands incredibly greasy with these huge nachos because they didn't make nachos like anybody else. They didn't just get these little chips. They got these huge tortillas. They fried them up and you ate the huge tortilla fried up with cheese on top of it. I remember my hands getting greasy and being at family reunions. I remember sitting at my grandparents' house trying to figure out what am I going to do next and imagining the fence in the back as like this army fence and me crawling around in the ground, playing with the dog that they had, Dusty. I remember the smell of those things. I remember those things. What's the difference? It's one thing for me to talk about those and relate it to the people I was talking to last night. It's another thing to actually say, hey, here's how I really experienced it. The reliability goes together. It's this weaving of this, yeah, I'm, I'm from Texas. How do they believe me that I'm from Texas? Just because I can name a bunch of restaurants? Or also because these experiences, this reliability goes from this testimony that's just far beyond myself. See, Luke is writing in this way. He wants us to know that. The simplest terms of the Bible is this. The reliability of the Bible throws us because it's not a compilation of things of, of, of religious pushings. So if you read what Luke is trying to say, listen to what he says, uh, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Accomplished. That word is saying that we're not trying to just create some religious document so we can push our way. We're actually saying there was something imposed on us. That is the whole of the Bible, the reliability of the Scripture. If you really want to know what it is, the reliability comes from the fact that it's all about God and Him and His character more than it is ours. Why would characters in the Bible write so much unsavory things about themselves? Why would they write such counterintuitive things about themselves and others all through Genesis to Revelation? Why would even the the main characters put themselves in a light that was not favorable in anybody's eyes? If it weren't for somebody accomplished among them, something coming into their life and doing something. I love what this one historian says. He says, the historical once-for-allness of Christianity distinguishes it from religious and philosophical systems which are not specifically related to any particular time. It makes the reliability of the writings which report to record this revelation a question of first importance. It's a once for all. There's something that has happened and they can't help but write about it. People can't help but ask these questions. And the narrative is being built. I, I want to I answer a couple questions just briefly for you because I think these are important as we kind of move into this. Do we have the right books of the Bible? Those kind of things. Let's, let's look at that just quickly. 
The, the Old Testament, just so you know, was written, and Jesus even says this here. He even mentions this when he starts to unpack the Bible to these, these disciples. They're questioning, they're asking all these questions. Why does Jesus take the time to unpack the law and the prophets? And then right after this, even in a couple verses, he says, the law, prophets, and writings. Those are the three sections that the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew Old Testament, everything you have in your Bible or on your phone, was made up of. And it was already put together hundreds of years even before Jesus' time. So put together and written and, 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 and taken together and, and canonized. That is, put together as a standard, a rule. The New Testament was this. There was this thing called ap apostolic belief. That the apostle, remember when we said that the word apostle? The word apostle is basically not just, so it's, it's, we typically think of it as a religious term. It actually is more like a lawyer. Someone who'd be entrusted or guarded with what would be the law or rule or standard and would be passed on. Someone who was trusted with that. So one of the, the key things of understanding, a test of whether the, one of the New Testament books was kept was did it compete or did it, did it collaborate with apostolic care, the apostles themselves? That's important to understand. And I know you're thinking, oh gosh, this is like pastor guy nerding out, but this is really important for you to know because how do we believe, how do we trust that these things got passed down, copies of copies of copies of copies? We know that because they were transmitted, they were passed on because of reliable things. Look, the only second document that has as much reliability in its copies and sources as the Bible is Homer's Odyssey. The Iliad and the Odyssey has, second to the New Testament, has 650 copies the Bible has fi over 5,500 copies of manuscripts that we have put together. This is really important for us to understand because it's easy for us to look along the beam and just go, uh, does that really matter to us? It matters. Because if, it, if Jesus doesn't come in physical, tangible form, then why do we need to talk about the reliability of anything? It can just simply be an experience. We can just look along the beam and enjoy everything about it. But then how do we know it's true? It's because God works outside of us in space and time to keep his word preserved to get to us thousands of years later. Even through copies of copies of people writing it down, preserving it, keeping it, speaking it to one another. It's amazing. That's why Peter, the Apostle Peter says, and we read it, he can say, we have something more sure than even the experiences of him seeing Jesus transfigure into bright white light on a mountainside that you and I hold in our hands a Bible, a word from God that is actually more sure. That is unbelievable. How can we, how can we believe that? Because God has worked through history and space and time to get to us. See, and it's not only that reliability, but how about that relatability? Look, I was like getting off an elevator. I remember this. And I was holding a book that said Paul on it. I, was, I think I was reading some, you know, uh, of Paul's letters or it was a commentary or something. And I was standing next to this person on an elevator and he looks down and he, the elevator's door, doors open and he says, yeah, you know, Paul didn't write that, right? And he walks right off and the doors close. I'm like, well, that's convenient, you know? <laughs> but that really is, in our minds, it's, I mean, that's kind of it. It's, it's like, it poses a couple things to me. One is, well, he wasn't really interested in having a discussion about it. But two is, what would our elevator speech be? 
You know, how do we talk about the Bible in those moments? Because isn't that what really, how, how it happens? It's not just we're sitting down and let's lay out all the manuscripts together. I mean, how many of you are actually doing that on a day-to-day basis, right? It's in the elevator. It's somebody looking at the, your, you know, it's, it's those moments where maybe you actually have a Bible in public and people are kind of like, what is, okay, we're in Nashville. That's probably acceptable, you know? But how do you make sense of the fact that we actually believe in this church and maybe you're here this morning and you're learning about what we, you know, hold to in this church and, and Lord willing that you're going to take up and look at with us is that we believe that the Bible is true. But is it relatable? Is it one of those things that's like, okay, well, that's great. I'll grant that to you like a person on an elevator. I'll give you that. That's great. But I don't really care. What does it have to do with it? Okay, maybe it has great historical significance. I could pull out a million different things on manuscripts for you. But what in the world? How does it relate to me? Notice what Jesus does. These two men are walking in Luke chapter 24. We skip from chapter 1 to 24. Jesus has died and now he's resurrected. And these two men are walking um, to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they're talking about, in verse 14, the things that had happened. And they're discussing one another. And then Jesus with one another. And Jesus drew near, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other? And they looked at him kind of sad. They were kind of sad. And one of them said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? And they're kind of sad because of the events. But they're looking at this guy going, do you not get what happened? Like, are you, this would be like one of those things like we all have a, have a smartphone and some huge event happens in the world, which it often does. And, and, and everybody's talking about it. And all of a sudden you're like, have you not looked at your phone lately to see the news feed of what just happened in so-and-so country or in our city or whatever? They're going, are you not like with it? Do you know? <laughs> so they explain all these things. And, and so what they're wanting is when it says, and, and even Luke says, to compile the, a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, these guys are sad because they were hoping that their story mattered. I mean, you can talk about all the details that Jesus came. They're trying to make sense of it. Jesus has now died, and to them, he's gone. They don't recognize him. And it's not that they don't recognize him because Jesus was hiding. It's just they're not expecting him to be there. And then the news of what they have, they have all the history. They have all the events. <laughs> but what they're asking is, how does our story make sense in this? This is an amazing, incredible, impactful event accomplished among us. And yet, what do we do with it now? How does it relate? Because we want our story to matter. We want to know that our story, your story and mine, things that happen, the details that are going on in your life and mine aren't just some part of some plan of history that's just either cyclical or just heading to nowhere. We want to know that we actually have a story, our story, our personal story actually has roots in something bigger than ourselves. And they're sad because they were hoping that was the case. And Jesus comes to tell them, your story is a part of something larger. They're travelers. They're wondering, what connects? How does it work? Luke is writing to say that these are accounts of people that wanted their story to connect to something bigger than themselves. Some of you may have read this before, but Netflix did a study on this, on 
on, on why people binge watch so much? Why do we love binge watching? I mean, if you think about the short attention span we have on even scrolling through Instagram or something like that, like store Instagram stories and how short they are, to then jump to why do we binge watch for hours on our couches or on our beds with a laptop? And they wanted to ask this question. They did a study on themselves. They said binge watching isn't an emerging trend or behavior. It's mainstream in the new normal. 61%, that may have even gone up, binge watch regularly. That means three episodes in a single sitting, kind of like that. Now, you can't deny it. You all do this. Dispelling conventional wisdom, binge watching is actually moderate behavior, they're calling. And here's why. Listen to this. In a highly fragmented, 140-character, 24-7 world, viewers are seeking out longer forms of complex storytelling. To put it in even the words of Ben Wyatt from Parks and Recreation, which is a show I love very much, he, as a character on this show, made a comment about this kind of thing and said, hey, they're trying to weave, he loves fantasy and stuff, they're trying to weave fantasy in with personal connection so people will want to watch and stay tuned. <laughs> he's, trying to, he's trying to, you know, verify it's okay to, for him to nerd out and binge watch certain shows. But that's why we do it. Because we want, we want a story that we're a part of. We, wanna, we don't want to leave it. And when it ends, you know how it is. If you catch up on a season, if you're watching some show and then you like finish the binge and then it's like you're caught up in the season, you have to wait, wait a week for the next one. Like you're like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> because we want it right there. We want to be enveloped in it. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, here's the story that you've been longing for. Imagine this. All these people are seeing accounts of a man coming through and no longer are their children or their family members laying in a grave. They're actually coming out of them. No longer are they racked with illness or leprosy or cast out socially. They're being brought in. They're seeing these stories of different people and their lives being brought together through someone who says, all of history points to me. That's the difference. Jesus isn't saying, hey, let me help you understand that your story is important. He says, let me help you understand that your story is important because it connects to me being the pinnacle of it. That is a powerful thing. He says that not just, hey, let's look at the law, prophets, and writings. Let's open up your Old Testament. Let's have a good Bible study. He doesn't just say, let me teach you these things. He says, let me teach you about how they all connect to me. Because isn't that what we want? We want our story to connect. We want it to be a part of something larger. Isn't this why their hearts begin to burn? Isn't that what we want? Verse 32, the very end of it, it says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Isn't that what we would really want to experience? I mean, looking along the beam to where we just feel the sense of that we're with God because we're reading the Bible. But we can't do that outside of the fact that we look along it and that there actually is a tangible person, an actual person in history that is the pinnacle of history, redemptive history, that there's a story that's greater than ourselves. See, this is why Luke's, one of Luke's top words in his entire gospel is the word amazement, wonder. 
It's used over and over. In his sophisticated style of writing, he is wanting us to know amazement. He even uses it here in this when he talks about the women who come back from um, in verse 21 and 22. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, beside all this, he noticed they're wanting this story to be true, to make their story make sense. It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us that they were at the, tomb early, uh, at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that he, they had even seen vision of angels who said that his, he was alive. Amazed. Because isn't that the deepest part of it? Not just that we look along the beam, it's reliable. We look at the beam and we know our story matters. What's the deepest part of that? It's that our story is going somewhere and it means something and we're amazed by it. So many of us read the Bible and we find it like eating chalk. Even if you say you've been a Christian for years and you go back to it and you're hoping that every time maybe you read it, it just stirs up something in you. Or maybe you need to feel good about it in order to go to it. It's not always going to do that. It's not a book that does that. This is why we struggle so often with reading the Scripture. It's because we are so used, especially in our culture, to hearing news that we want to hear. This is why we go to the internet and on our phones and only select articles that feed to ways that we agree with and things that we feel good about. The Bible doesn't let you do that. The news that Jesus brings to them, the way that Jesus culminates this by speaking to these two men isn't just to make them not sad and tell them, hey, it's going to be okay. How does he do it? He says it in a way that may not fit into their paradigm, but he says, you need to understand it's not all about you. It's all about me and what I have done. See, the amazement is this this fact that we need to experience wonder like little children, like Charlie, (laughs) like sweet Charlie up here. I don't think I've ever had a, a, a child I baptized then. I don't know if he was reaching for me, but I'll at least take it after I baptized him, reach back. Or at least I got to hold him again. (laughs) After you put water on a child, they typically don't want to be held again. But he wanted to. And there was some amazement about him, just seeing his face, everything he's taking in. This is why when I've gotten to speak at at, uh, this camp called Alpine Camp for Boys, some of you know it, they've been probably a part of a million different camps, where I was actually able to speak to the counselors uh, nearly every year, Brett and I were able to go and do this. But they would ask that, that the main thing I was trying to get them to see was, your job is to not try and make these boys men. You're trying to teach them to be children. The Bible is teaching us that we need to be kids and wonder and amazement at, the, at what is accomplished. Look, when we go to this table, this is not just an everyday table. We talk about this language that the Bible uses called the Word made flesh. And this is a very different thing. And even the ancient Roman, Greco-Roman culture thought that the Christians in that day were crazy. They actually thought because we described this as the body and blood of Jesus that we were cannibals. They said, what's up with these weird religious cannibals? And often when we come to the Bible, we can feel that way. But what... What is the point of God making the Word made flesh? It's so that we can go back to the Word and see Him in flesh. 
See, when you come to this table, you're taking something that is accomplished in the deepest longings of human history. It's those longings you're, you're wanting to have, like you're, you're hoping tomorrow, Memorial Day, is an actual day of rest for you. You know those deep longings that you're hoping you don't wake up with anxiety in the morning. That you're able to, to, to find relief from the stress that you've had in the week. Those vacations that you look forward to where you recognize the wind and the smell and the, and the taste that, that take you away from everything else. This is actually something more sure than that. It reminds you of something that's greater and more permanent. And the man is the pinnacle of history, Jesus Christ. That's how our hearts burn. It's not by having some experience in the Scripture. It's by meeting Jesus over and over and asking Him to have our hearts burn. Notice, their hearts didn't burn before they went to the Bible. It burned by encountering Him in the Bible. Come to this table this morning and recognize again by the taste and smell of the tangible nature that Jesus meets you now and in history as the redeemer of everything around us. This is the beautiful part of this. This is the amazement of of what God has done. Let's stand together.